Good morning. I apologize a little bit for my voice. If you notice anything different, you probably don't, but it's a little groggly. Um, I was sick last week and then kind of this lingering voice stuff. So I'll do my best to get through this. Ruth chapter one, verse one through 22. It's in the Old Testament. If you have a hard copy of the Bible, it's, it's towards the beginning. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So you can scan the QR code if that's easier for you to get there. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We got ushers who will give you a Bible this morning. You can take it home if you need a Bible at home. We encourage everybody obviously to be in the word of God. Thanks for being here in person this morning. Thanks for those who are joining us online and traditions and kindred. So we're starting this series called A Christmas Story, The Book of Ruth. And this morning's message is entitled, God Sees Us. How is this tied in with the Christmas story? How is the the book of Ruth from the Old Testament tied in with the Christmas story? Well, Jesus is in the line of David. David's father was Jesse in the Old Testament. Jesse's father was Obed. And Obed's father was Boaz, who is a central character in this book of Ruth. So it's kind of a foreshadowing of the the power of the gospel that we'll see in the next four weeks. So the book of Ruth is the first of two books named after women in the Old Testament, and the other one is Esther. So Ruth uh, herself, she is a Gentile, which means that she's not a Jew, and she's a Moabite. So I'm gonna give you a little history here, just where we're going and to kind of set up this book. The author of this book, um, though it's never mentioned and though he's never identified, it's assumed that it is Samuel. And the location of the events in this book are mainly in Bethlehem. And the book of Ruth will invite us to reflect on this central question. Is God, and if so, how is God, involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in this book. There's Naomi, the widow, Ruth, the Moabite, and Boaz, the Israelite farmer. So those are the three main characters. It's an amazing story and has been called by some the most beautiful short story ever written. Though God appears to be hidden in the book, he, rather than Naomi, rather than Ruth, rather than Boaz, has been called the key figure in this story, even though he's never talked about, so to speak. Some have gone as far as to say that in almost nearly every single word that we read in this book, the author intends to point to God's sovereign purposes. Hopefully you can see that. The book's theme is not to draw our attention to, to major events in Israel's history, but rather to the problems and the concerns of one family in Bethlehem that directs our attention to the divine providence of God. If we're following along on the outline, God sees our circumstances. It's the first five verses. Here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech. Can you say that? Elimelech. Nah. You went, uh. Elimelech. One, thank you. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Those are interesting names. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. 
and they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they had lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left with her two sons and her husband. Left without her two sons and husband. Chapter one opens with this line. In the days when the judges ruled, it was a time of, of moral and political chaos in Israel. It was a time when people repeatedly turned away from God, a time when they found themselves being constantly harassed and invaded by neighboring people. The most popular phrase in the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You've probably heard that phrase. During this time, there was no earthly king and God was supposed to be their king, but the people did not acknowledge God as their king and all of the people were doing what they decided to do in their own eyes. It was a time of reckless morality. If you were sent to Bethlehem in those days as a reporter, at first glance, what you might immediately take note of or, or what you might put in your notes is that uh, people's depravity was on full display. You didn't have to go very far. You didn't have to look very far to see sin on full display. But if you were to dig deeper and take a closer look, like a good reporter, you would notice that God was weaving a different story in the background. Right smack in the middle of the godlessness that was on steroids, God was writing a story within the story that would point to his sovereignty for the rest of time. It was a story about his amazing unconditional love, a story about his amazing redemption. And in the first two verses, we are introduced to a family and the difficult circumstances surrounding them. And in this case, it was a famine. Here we go. First, let's look at the family. The man's name was Elimelech. What does that name mean? El means God, Melech means king. So his name means my God is king. He is married to Naomi, meaning pleasant or delightful. That was her name. They have two sons who are given names quite different than their dad, which was my God is king or mom, which means delightful. The first son's name is Malon. His name means weak or sick. The second son's name is Kilion, meaning tired or dying. Those are interesting names, right, for their two sons. You can just hear mom and dad calling their sons, hey, sick and tired, right? Or might the two sons use their names to present their sorry case? We are sick and tired. There's nothing to eat around here. And then my God is king and delightful speak up and to their precious little boys, that's because there's a famine. Have you not noticed that we haven't had Smashburgers on the Blackstone for a while, right? I'll tell you who's sick and tired. My God is king and delightful. We're sick and tired of you whining and complaining, but dad and mom, we're so confused. I thought we were sick and tired. My God is, and king says to delightful, spare the rod and spoil the child. And delightful says back, you can't do that because also remember their names mean weak and dying. There's the family. There's a famine in the land. No indication for how long, how wide has this famine spread? 
What we do know is that the famine has made life very difficult for this family. So this family, in order to escape this this famine, they pack up and they head to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. Just to give you perspective, Bethlehem is five miles straight south of Jerusalem. So Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and then you have this big lake, the Dead Sea, and on the other side of the Dead Sea is this land called Moab. It's modern day Jordan, if you can imagine that. Bethlehem, where the famine is taking place, do you know what it means? House of bread. Wheat was harvested there. So the place called House of Bread, there's no bread. If you were to read about the various famines that took place that would strike Israel, you would discover pretty quickly that these famines were not the result of natural disasters that would just ebb and flow throughout history, like we might suspect. Rather, you would discover that the famines were directly linked to God's correction. Remember when it comes to what they called or what we call natural disasters, you need to know this. You will hear me say this a hundred times, that God causes or allows all things to happen. As soon as we say something can happen outside of either God causing it or at minimum of him allowing it, then we must also say that God lacks sovereign power. There were times in Israel's history when he would withhold rain as an example and he would use that to correct his children. So often famine was associated with God's corrective hand. So it ought not surprise us knowing what we know during the days of the judges that God would do just that. Cause or allow a famine as a corrective measure for his people. Remember that Israel had a pattern about them. If you've studied Israel at all in the Old Testament, they had a pattern about them. They would worship God, they would bow before him, and then they would worship a false god. And then they would worship God, and then they would worship a false god, a pagan god. Like this merry-go-round over and over, this cycle had become all too familiar in the book of Judges. It went sin, judgment, rescue. Sin, judgment, rescue. Multiple cycles of this. Israel had this pattern or this cycle of good kings and bad kings. They would endure hardships and cry out to God and then God would raise up a new judge and then they would bow before God again, leading to a time of favor and peace for them. What you will notice by the end of the message is this. If chapter one, is all we had for the book of Ruth. There wasn't a chapter two, three, and four. If chapter one was it, it would leave us in no different place than the book of Judges. Keep in mind the book of Ruth is more than just a footnote to the book of Judges. So what we know is that Ruth took place sometime in the history of the book of Judges. It is key for us to understand Judges, which again ends with a sad note. In those days, Israel wasn't ruled by a king and everyone did what they thought was right. And the question cries out, when will God give a king to his people? So this famine, it's a form of discipline. To this day, he still disciplines his children. You, me, 
There are times when he causes. There are times when he allows things in our lives as a measure of discipline. But not all hardships are God's discipline. Sometimes we experience hardships because we live in a broken and fallen world, right? Sometimes we experience hardships because of our own decisions. They're called consequences. Sometimes we experience hardships because it is the evil one that is attacking us. But there are times when God disciplines his children by allowing difficulties to get our attention. To get us to a place where we look to him. A place of brokenness, it's a place of surrender, it's a place of humility. A huge piece of Ruth's story has to do with understanding who God is. He is sovereign and either causes or allows all things to happen So God's motive, because we will never know this side of eternity, is not what's most important. Because if he didn't cause it, he allowed it. But why? Because he uses all things for our good, their good, and for his glory. Some of you have been through some horrific and extremely challenging circumstances, as have I. Mere difficult circumstances provide for us reason to redirect our eyes from this life to our sovereign king, trusting in him as he directs our steps and he begins to continually to unfold his plan for us. No matter what, always remember that he sees us. No matter what, always remember that he cares for you. That he loves you. That he always has his best in mind for you. And one day, scripture tells us in Revelation, he'll wipe away every tear. And we'll find rest for all eternity in his presence. In the book of Ruth, there's a severe famine happening and this family leaves Bethlehem and they head to Moab for 10 years. Once they're there, the two boys, sick and tired, married two Moabite women. One is named Orpah, her name means fawn, and the other is Ruth. Her name means friendship. So sick and tired, Mary fought in friendship. But dad dies. And so the two sons live up to their names, right? Do you remember the other part of their name? Weak and dying. And they also pass. So now there's three people left. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. Secondly, God sees our dilemma. Look at Verse six, as we keep going. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So Naomi catches wind that the famine is over in Bethlehem. This is 10 years later. Now keep in mind the two daughter-in-laws were Moabite women, 
right? Remember, they went there, the two sons of Mary, these two Moabite women. The Moabites were children of incest. You might remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his family were the only righteous family that were found in Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of their faithfulness to God, he sends an angel who escorts them out of the city. And when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but remember as they were leaving, you remember what Lot's wife did? If you remember the story at all, she turned, she looked back to the city and she turned into a pillar of salt. In those days, a woman who was without a husband, like Naomi is now, and childless because both of her sons have died, would tend to suffer. Because in those days, women depended on men to provide for them. And here's why that's important. It is thought by some that when the daughters of Lot, as they were leaving the cities, remember mom turns into a pillar of salt, they turn and look and they see that Sodom and Gomorrah no longer exists. They begin to question, where are we gonna get our husbands? What does the Bible tell us that happens? They get their father drunk, Lot, and the first daughter sleeps with her father, gets pregnant, and then the second daughter does the same. The first daughter gives birth to a son named Benami, and his descendants become the Ammonites. The other son, born from the other daughter, is Moab, whose descendants are the Moabites. And so the Moabites are descendants of an incestuous relationship. And that's where they were living. So the two daughters were a part of that. And so the background helps us to see how God takes a bad heritage and unfortunate circumstances and redeems life, which eventually becomes a part of a much bigger story. So far, we have a family, dad, mom, two sons, famine takes place, they move to Moab. The two sons marry, two Moabite girls. Dad and the two sons die, leaving Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. The Moabites were so far from God. No fault of their own, but because they were descendants of Lot and his daughter's incestual relationship. When we know and understand just how unreachable and tainted the background of a person is or a group of people, the redemption is so much more amazing. Verse seven, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah, back to Bethlehem. So all three of them head out. We're going back. The famine's over. Then Naomi stops them, knowing that they are Moabites, and they're heading back to a place where historically they have not been ever welcomed. And she says this, verse 8, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to each other and to her, we will go back with you to your people. 
you are better off here than to go with me. The two daughters raised their voices and insisted that they go with Naomi to her hometown. And Naomi responds, verses 11 through 13. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I gonna have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to two sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. She was saying, look, if you think you're coming with me and I'm gonna remarry, I'm gonna have some new sons and you're gonna marry them, it's not gonna happen. Stay here. She says to them, it grieves me for your sake that the hand of the Lord is against me. She says, it is more bitter for me the word bitter is key because as we'll see, bitter marks Naomi's life. Eventually we will see that she even wants to be renamed because of the bitterness in her soul. She has found herself in a very difficult, a very dark place in life. She was suffering from a famine, moved to a far off country. And while she's there, she loses her husband and both sons. She's in a very, very difficult season of life and she deserves our compassion. But we're beginning to pick up on her resolve as she looks around at life. She's looking around at life. And her conclusion is this, God is against me. Her attitude in many ways shouldn't surprise us. Probably none of us here are exempt from that. None of us here are probably exempt from ever thinking that, man, when I look at life, is God against me? But many people land there when they attempt to reconcile life and God's goodness. They can't fathom that a good and a loving God would allow that to happen. He must be against me. If you are finding yourself in a place in life that is difficult, can I caution you to not run too quickly to a place of thinking that God is out to get you? God is never out to get you. He's out to grow you, but not to get you. I pray that what we'll see over the next four weeks in Ruth's life will be a great reminder for all of us that God is faithful. Verse 14, at this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. I once heard an illustration of the difference between kissers and cleavers. Some will kiss you and then turn their back on you and others will cleave to you. Judas was a kisser. Some people would kiss you and then leave you. They're not loyal to you. 
They're not a true friend. They're playing you. But Ruth clung to Naomi. Orpah leaves and starts her own talk show, becomes a billionaire. All kidding aside, did you know that Oprah was named after Orpah? On her birth certificate, says Orpah, but everybody kept mispronouncing it and calling her Oprah. That's how she got her name. Google it. Not now. Verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Why are you still here? Go with your sister. Go back and do what she does. Number three, God sees our heart. Verse 16 and 17 as we keep going. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So Ruth declares in that moment, I'm not turning back. I want to go with you. I want your God to be my God. I want to live where you live. I want to know your people. I want to die where you die. Verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Naomi was speechless after Ruth's declaration. Verse 19, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Remember, Naomi's been gone for 10 years. But listen to Naomi's response because she's going to start to reveal what's in her heart. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. The name Mara means bitter. She corrected them to say, call me by a name that matches how I feel. I feel bitter. Don't call me by my real name that means pleasant or delightful. Call me by a name that represents the way I'm experiencing life. Verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. I left here full. I returned home empty. What is she saying? I am bitter. The Lord has made my life bitter. 
God has afflicted me, brought misery to my life. Interestingly, verse 21 is flipped on its head. Could it read? The Lord sent me out full and I return empty. It's revealing and it introduces this. Naomi is revealing that she believes in the sovereignty of God, but only as it relates to difficult things in her life. Let's read it again. I went out full self-reliance. No need to point to God's sovereign hand, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I left full of self and I returned bitter because of God. I left and God did this. When bad things happen, many people point to God. And when good things happen, many people like to point to self. The fact that God is sovereign essentially means that he has power, wisdom, and authority to do anything he chooses within his creation at any time. He is consistently himself, meaning he never ceases being who he is. He, he's always, he always loves us, both during the times it feels like it and the times when it doesn't. He is always just. He always has our good in mind. All this to say that our experiences are never an indicator of God's sovereign purposes. When things in this life are easy and pleasant, God is sovereign. When things in this life are hard and they're very difficult, God is sovereign. Because we always want good things to happen and never bad things, it's easy for us to take credit for the good and blame God for the bad. But Naomi's theology is getting exposed. But again, let's show compassion. She's had a horrific season in her life. No husband, no sons, no home, no food, no money, no hope. Bitterness is not far removed from loss. She's blaming God she cannot see anything good. It's okay to be honest with God. God can take it. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to express your heart, to reveal your pain, to acknowledge your bitterness, to share your disappointment when you feel crushed, when you feel hopeless. Where are you, God? Do you hear me? It's okay. We have mistakenly believed that there's safety in our ability to control everything. The truth is there's nothing that we can ultimately control. We have zero control over what happens during this life. The only thing we have control over is how we respond to it. As someone once said, my response is my responsibility. We have a choice. We can say, I am mad at God, God did this. He's brought misery into my life. He made me bitter, this is his fault. Or we can offer this kind of a prayer, which is the one thing. 
Dear God, I'm hurting, confused, crushed, perplexed, and none of this makes sense. I don't understand it, nor do I get it. But through it all, I want you to know that I trust you. You are my God, my King. Your ways are higher than mine. You love me and have your best in mind for me. If you choose not to allow me to understand this pain on this side of heaven, I still will trust you. Either way, please sustain me on this journey and help me to keep my eyes fixed on you. Amen.